James, James chapter 1, James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 19 to 27. For those of you who don't know me, like Layton said, my name is Christian, and if you don't know anything about me, I'm one of the ministry associates here at Lighthouse, where I mostly help out with Praxis, which is our young adult ministry here at Lighthouse. I'm married to Julie, who is not here tonight, unfortunately, but she also serves with me in Praxis. And it is a joy to be here. This is my first time preaching to youth students. Um, I've taught in children's ministry. That's where I kind of got my start in teaching. And I loved uh, youth, or sorry, I loved children's ministry. And I haven't preached to middle school and youth, so I am a little uh, intimidated. So please uh, show me some grace, uh, please. But all joking aside, it is good to, to be here, especially to study the letter of James, to study the letter of James. When David first asked me to preach on James, I was very quick to say yes. James is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. I joked with David that I would just come up and just read a passage and just leave. Because James is a very convicting book. James is a very strong book. Or if you've ever read James, it's very rare for someone to walk away and not feel something after reading James. Because James is really one of those books that can preach itself. A few weeks ago, I preached in, or at Praxis, and I preached on Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, the first half, where Paul, he gives this list, or he, he gives these greetings to all these believers in Rome, and I was personally encouraged by the passage, but if you've read it before, if you've heard it preached, it's usually not like every preacher's first passage that they think of when it's like, man, I really love that passage when I, you know, when I preach it, or that passage, you know, saved me, or, or whatever. So when I come to the book of James, I'm very excited, and, and I think it's completely different, because James, he gives such rich, deep application, but he's also rich in his theology. And as you guys know, uh, if you've been here for even just the past few weeks, as you've gone through James, you know that the theme of this series is having a wholehearted devotion to God. And this is what James addresses to these believers over and over again in the book. You can't miss it. And this is in contrast to having a half-hearted devotion to God, where we act a certain way in church, but when we leave and go home, or we go to school, or even when we're in church, maybe, with our friends or our teammates outside of church. We're completely different people. That's a half-hearted devotion to God that James is combating, where one part of us professes to love and to know God, but another part says something completely different. And James says, this is not how things ought to be. We should not be living in hypocrisy with divided hearts. Hence the theme of the series, to have wholehearted, complete devotion to God. And again, we see this all over in the book. And in tonight's message, we're going to talk about being consistent in our relationship to God's Word. Being wholehearted in our relationship to God's Word. And specifically, not just being hearers of the Word, but also being doers. 
So let me read a hard passage for us. So James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we're just going to jump right into it. You guys have your notes right in front of you. You see the title there, not just being hearers of God's word, but being doers of God's word. So starting in point number one, we're just going to work through the passage. And starting in verses 19 to 21, hearing God's word. And we're focusing on not just hearing God's word, but as we'll see, what it looks like to receive God's word, to truly receive it. Not just to hear it physically, but to truly receive it. So starting in verse 19, James addresses these people as his beloved brothers. And you might think that's not a big deal, or maybe that's small. But this is going to occur over and over in the letter, when James addresses these people. And I think it's important, because maybe not yet, but you're going to see that James can get pretty hard. James is really going to kind of go for the jugular with his audience. But I think it's important to highlight that he addresses them as beloved brothers because he's showing, guys, you are my brothers. I love you, and this is why I'm being so straightforward with you, because I care about you so much. And even as I sit here and, or stand here and preach to you tonight, I might say some harsh things, and I want you to know that I'm your brother in Christ, and that I love you. And so when I say things, I hope that you know that this is because I care for you, and I want what's best for you. And I'm preaching many of these things, all of these things to myself as well, even as I was working through this passage. And so, James, when we read this, we want him, or we want to remember that James cares for us too as believers, even though obviously he's writing to a certain context. He's writing with other believers in mind. So he cares for us, and so he addresses them as beloved brothers. And then he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So I want to slow down here because he gives this command, let, that, that little word, let, right? In the Greek, it's going to be a command. It's an imperative where he's saying, all right, everybody, every person here, if you are a brother, if you're a beloved brother, if you call yourself a Christian, if you identify yourself as a Christ follower, listen up. He's saying everybody needs to hear. And some of you may have heard this before, but the New Testament letters, as some of you know, they were passed around. And when they were passed around, they were read usually out loud. 
And so James, he gives this letter to these believers, and they're reading this most likely out loud. So everyone is hearing this, and they could hear James' voice, and he's saying, everybody, let every person, so calling attention to all of us, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And there's different interpretations on what this means uh, when he says to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Right? Is he talking about, in general, right, being quick hearers, being slow speakers, being slow to anger, kind of like how we read in the book of Proverbs, right, or what we see Jesus talk about, right, loving our enemies and, and not getting angry in our hearts? Is, is that what James is getting at? Or is he talking about having a certain posture in regard to our relationship with God's Word? So which one is it? Well, good scholars, they'll land on both sides on this, but I think in the context of the passage, I think he's talking about our relationship to God's Word. Because if you look back at verse 17, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow due to change. And in verse, verse 18, he talks about one of these gifts being God's word. Of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. God saved us by his word, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then in verse 19, and then we'll see in verse 21, that it seems like James is referring to our relationship to God's word. This point seems to be that we're to be quick to receive God's word, but slow to resist and be antagonistic towards it. Because in verse 20, this is what he says. He says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, what he's saying is, we're to be quick to receive God's word. We're not to resist it or to be angry when we hear something we don't want to hear. Because when we do that, when we don't receive it, it's going to produce unrighteousness. Right? He says it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. In other words, God's word, it's meant to guide us. It's meant to help us and be a light and a lamp to us and how we relate to God and how we relate to our fellow man, our fellow image bearers of God. It leads us into right living, righteous living, and that's what it should produce in us. But James is giving this command, this warning, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, because if we're not, and if we resist and ignore God's word, it's going to do the opposite for us of producing righteousness. It's going to lead us into sin. It's going to ruin our lives and the lives of others, and most crucially, it's going to ruin our relationship with God. In verse 21, James goes on and he says, Therefore, so in light of this, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the word implanted, or the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So what is James getting at? What is he saying? Well, remember, he's talking about our relationship to God's word, and he's essentially saying in this verse that we're to put away the sin that is going to hinder us from hearing God's word. 
put away the sin that is going to hinder what God has to say to us. Turn over to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. It's the next book to your right. It's going to be 1 Peter chapter 2. It's interesting, Peter uses very similar language as James. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 3. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter, he's referring to God's work, or sorry, God's word, that spiritual milk that allows us and aids us in our growth as Christians. And he says the same thing as James. And he gives us commands to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy. And he's, he's basically just saying put away sin. He's telling us to put away sin before we come to God's word to receive it. And Peter's saying that in verse 3, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. In verse 3, it says if, but it could be rendered since. Since we have indeed tasted that the Lord is good. We're to put away sin and we're to come and receive God's word. And Peter and James are essentially saying that our sin can hinder us when we come to receive God's word. And how does that work? How does that work? Hopefully this might help explain it. We maybe, well, I don't know if you guys are, are old enough, but as you get older and, and as you just are part of the church long enough, you start to hear stories, unfortunately, about people caught in sin. People who maybe, you know, you might uh, go to college and you might hear friends, maybe, yeah, different churches or people you grew up with that were walking with the Lord and, and maybe they think the world is going to provide satisfaction and joy, and so they start pursuing sin. They walk away from God and the church, or even people in the church who are caught in sin, and you want to lovingly confront their sin and call them to repentance. And usually, there is this spiritual element where usually there is some sin involved that is going to make their hearts hardened, right? that is going to make them resistant to God's word when you confront them about certain sins. So when they and their sin are confronted by the truth of God's word, they resist even more and they harden their hearts even more and they continue in their sin, believing it's going to provide joy and happiness. And that's what idolatry does, right? Sin blinds us to make us think that what we are doing is the right thing, it's the good thing. And people love their sin. We love our sin. And so when we are confronted or we confront other people with God's word, typically, right, it's going to be difficult. It's going to, you know, you're, you're wrestling something from someone that they cherish and enjoy. And so many times there's resistance to God's word because basically you're just telling them what they don't want to hear, right? And you're threatening something that they cherish. And so for us, when we come to God's word, holding on to some sin in our lives, some idolatry, something we cherish right, in our hearts, what Peter and James are saying is we're essentially walking into things with earmuffs on. When we come here to hear a sermon, when we read our Bibles, 
when our parents correct us or teach us with Scripture, James and Peter are saying that we have to examine ourselves and see if there's anything that might be impeding us from listening to the good Word of God. Because James remind us, reminds us that this is the Word which is able to save our souls. We might get defensive and think, you know, this person is just being judgmental, they don't care about me, right? Or, or maybe even God's word is wrong, right? And, and I've got it right. We might justify it however we want, in whatever way we can, thinking it's not for our good, right? When God tells us to do something, or to stop doing something, or to let go of something. But James reminds us at the end of verse 21 that this is the word which is able to save our souls. Indeed, it is the word that we have tasted and seeing that is good, because we see that the, the God within the word is good. That's what Peter says. So they're reminding us to set aside sin or things that might be blinding us or making us resistant to God's word. But it's not just putting off sin when we come to God's word, but it's also putting on a certain attitude. James says we're to receive the word with meekness, with meekness. He says that in verse 21. And he says to do this with, meek, with meekness. And what does that word mean? Well, in context, it probably means humility, humility. So the opposite of arrogance, the opposite of thinking that we know better than God, that we know better than the people who love us, who are trying to care for us spiritually by confronting us about our sin. Right, so it might be our parents, our youth group advisors, it might be preachers like myself. James is saying that we have to receive the word with a certain attitude. So putting off sin, right, and arrogance toward the word, but instead putting on a teachable spirit, a teachable spirit. So we don't argue with God about what he tells us in his word. Because he is God, and he is Lord over our lives, and we are not. And that doesn't mean we don't ask questions, right? Or that people like myself or your parents that were infallible, that we make mistakes or we can interpret Scripture incorrectly, right? And we should be examining and seeing, right, if this is true. But at the same time, we need to trust the people that God has put in our lives to care for us and who want to minister his word to us out of love and care. And so if it is something very clear from God's word, because God is God, because he knows better than us, we should not be so foolish to think we know better than him when he tells us something. Right? Something that is so clear in his word. And we say, mm, you know what, God? You know, with all due respect, I, I know you're God. Right? I know you're the creator of the universe. You run everything. You're all wise, you're all knowing, right? You've existed forever, but you know, I, I think you got this one wrong. Sorry. I'm 14 years old, and uh, I actually have a lot of wisdom, I have a lot of knowledge, and yeah, I, I know more than you, so you can kind of take a seat on this. James is saying we have to be very careful of this attitude, having an arrogant attitude, thinking that 
we know better than God and what he has said in his word. And so we need to ask ourselves, because it's going to happen, right? It might happen all the time for, for some of us. Why don't we want to receive God's word? Why don't we want to hear God's word? What might be impeding our hearing? Is there some sin in our lives, something in this world, something of the creation that we're cherishing more than the creator that we need to let go of? What is it gonna be? We also need to ask if we're being proud, if we're being arrogant, thinking we know better, so we don't think we need to listen to what God has to say to us. So moving on to point number two now. So doing God's word, doing God's word. Verses 22 to 25. So in verse 22, James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So James gives us a third step now. This is the final step. The first step when we come to hear God's word is to examine ourselves like he and Peter say, to, to make sure we put off any sin that might be obstructing our vision or obstructing our hearing so we can hear God's word properly. We have to examine ourselves. Second is to put on a new attitude of humility and teachability instead of arrogance. And so third, the final step when it comes to our relationship with God's word is to actually do God's word. To actually do God's word. And this might be the hardest part for many of us. Because James is saying you don't only put off the sin, and you don't only put off a bad attitude and a resistant attitude to God's word, you put on a new attitude, but now you need to live in accordance with that new attitude after you've received God's word. And this essentially completes the process. This is a wholehearted devotion to God. This is being complete and having integrity, being whole. Because if you're only a hearer but not a doer of the word, you've only done 50%, right? You've only made a 90 degree turn, not a 180 degree turn. You're still on the fence, maybe caught between two worlds, deceiving ourselves, living a double life. Because anybody can know a lot about the Bible. Right? Anybody can show up to church and hear things of Judas right, was with Jesus for three years, doing everything that the other disciples were doing, learning everything that the other disciples were doing, but his heart was hardened. He didn't do the word. There are many people we know that come to church all the time. Right? And as they get older, right, they hear all these sermons, but they end up walking away. Or even people who are believers, right, like ourselves, that hear the word, but we don't live it out. Or we do it in a way that's just here and there, we might live it out. And at the end of verse 22, James says, when we do this, if we're just hearers of the word, but not doers, we walk away thinking that we're true Christians, what word does he use there? Deception. And he says we are actually deceiving ourselves. And you can come to church your whole life. You can listen to thousands of sermons. You can serve and help with various ministries. You can play the part of church, being a Christian, 
but be living in a way that is completely contradictory to what you profess. While you dabble in sexual immorality, gossip, anger, cheating on school assignments, whatever it might be, James says that if we do this, if we come and we think we're Christians, but we don't actually live it out, he says we are deceived. Turn over to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. John says something similar. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, this is what he says. John says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him. He's, saying, he's essentially saying this is how we know if we're Christians. If, if we know that we're truly saved, this is how we know. This is how we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what's John saying? Well, in 1 John we kind of come across these, these sayers, these, these sayers, these people who say certain things. These people who say, I know him. I know God. Yeah, I know Jesus. I know him. I abide in him, he says in verse 6. There's people who say, yes, I abide in him. I know Jesus. But John says, you can say that, and that's good. Right? We need to be bold and confess that we can say yes, that we are Christians. But James, or sorry, John says that we truly know that we are Christians and know him if we keep his commandments. In John 14, what does Jesus say? If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. This is what John is saying. And that's what James is saying too. And James uses this example, going back to James now, verses 23 to 24. He uses this kind of interesting, maybe even confusing example, uh, this illustration in verses 23 to 24. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So what is James saying here? What is he using this illustration for? Well, I think he's talking about someone who, again, comes to church and hears a sermon, reads their Bible, receives biblical counsel, hears and receives these things, maybe in the moment, and remembers in that moment, before and for a short time, but when they walk away, they forget it or they don't continue to think about it and meditate on the truth of God's word that they've just heard. They forget it, and they don't act on what they've just heard. And if you were to think, um, just for your, yourselves, you can calculate this in your own head, how many sermons do you think you've heard in your life? Since you guys are in high school, maybe you feel like it's not that much. But if you were to count all of the Sunday school lessons, all of the VBS lessons, some of you starting from when you were just a few years old, how many lessons or sermons do you think you've heard? For me, I've been a Christian for about nine years now, so 
this is like a very rough number, but if I did nine years, right, times 52 weeks in a year, I had a message each week, it would come out to 468 messages. I think I calculated it, but I could be wrong. I'm not good at math. For many of us, right, the number is going to be in the hundreds. Right? And by the time we get to my age, for you guys, it might be in the thousands. And that's not even counting, again, the times we've encountered God and His Word through Bible studies, right? Reading it on our own, and even when parents teach us the Word, right? And they try to guide us with God's words hundreds, if not thousands of times. We've come face to face with God Himself through His Word. And how many of these times did it just go in one ear and out the other? Without us taking the time, again, to meditate and think, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to me? What is He calling me to do? What is He calling me to believe in? What is He calling me to obey? And James says, this can't be brothers. We can't do this. In verse 25, he contrasts this person with another person. In verse 25. In verse 25, he says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So in verse 25, he says the opposite of the person he just described, right? He's describing a completely different person. Someone who not only hears the word, but does it. And it's worth noting, I think, some of the vocabulary that James uses. He uses the word law, and he describes the law in a very interesting way. He says the law is perfect. It's the perfect law. And he also gives it the characteristic of liberty. He says this is the law of liberty. So what law is James referring to? Is this the Old Testament law? Right, what kind of law is this? Is this some legal codes, right, government codes? What is it? Well, we see perhaps the answer in chapter 2, if you glance there in chapter 2 verse 8 to 12 verses 8 to 12 I think James maybe gives us his definition here he says if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well but if you show partiality you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors but whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under, oh, there's the word, right? There's the phrase, the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy. To one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And there's, I don't want you to get like, kind of caught up in what some of that stuff means, but the main point I'm trying to get at is, James giving his definition of what he means by the law. So it looks like the law for James and for the other New Testament writers probably refers to the Old Testament law summed up in the two greatest commandments. To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus and Paul. Well, Jesus, in the Gospels, he says, 
right? Those are the two most important commandments. And then both he and Paul say that all of the commandments in the Old Testament, all 600, and, uh, there's more than 600, but a little over 600 of them, right? They all are summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to kind of touch on this because as most of you know, we're going through the book of Galatians on Sundays. And the concern I have for Christians, for, for many Christians, especially us coming from what we call a Lutheran tradition or Protestant tradition, or the concern I have is that when we go through a book like Galatians, is that we can walk away thinking that the law is bad, that the law is an oppressive and restrictive burden upon us, that it's almost a bad word right, that we don't talk about here. We can pit the law against the grace and the freedom that we have in Christ. But the conviction that James, Jesus, Paul, and many of the Jews at that time have always had about the law is that the law is good, that it is beautiful, that it's delightful. And this is because the purpose of the law it was always meant to teach people about who God is and to instruct people how to live and act toward one another and toward or in this world, which leads to blessing and to life. For ancient Israel and for Second Temple Jewish people, as these were the Jews during the time of Paul and Jesus, the law was always understood as a gift and not a burden. Turn with me to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1. Just listen to the language here. Listen to the words. That's what the psalmist writes. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And I think it's so interesting what the psalmist says in the language he uses. He says, blessed, happy is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, at the opposite of God's law, but the happy man, in verse 2, is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And then we get this beautiful imagery about trees and fruitfulness and flourishing. He's like a tree planted by streams of water and yields fruit. Whatever he does, he prospers. And then in Psalm 19, if you turn to Psalm 19, verses 7 to 10. This is the Psalm of David. In verse 7, David says, The law of the Lord is perfect. What did James describe the law as? Perfect. It revives the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 10, there are more to be desired, or more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Then if you've ever read Psalm 119, you know and you just see and feel the psalmist's joy and delight in the word of God, in the law of God. In Romans chapter 7, you can turn there if you want. Romans chapter 7. So you may be like, oh, well, that's Old Testament, right? Like, you know, of course, they thought the law was good, whatever, but, you know, Christ is here and it's all about grace. And so we don't have to follow the law, but that's exactly what Paul anticipates people are going to say in the first half of Romans. Right? And so he anticipates that objection, right, about the law, and so he feels the need to address it. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, or sorry, verse 10. Paul says, The very commandments that promised life proved to be death to me. He says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. And he says, Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. He's talking about the law. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 6, he talks about being released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve now in the spirit and not in the old way of the flesh. So what is he talking about? Well, he's saying that the problem is not with the law. The problem was never with the law. We clearly see that. Right? And he even says it right here in the New Testament, right? And Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Paul is saying that the problem is us. The problem is the human condition. The problem is our sin. Where the law becomes something that arouses our disobedience and our sin. And we see this even surprisingly in the Jewish people around the time of Jesus and Paul. This is one. This is what one Jewish writer uh, during the time of Jesus, or close to around the time of Jesus, says. He says, "Many and great things came to us through the law and the prophets, and the others who followed after them, who were writing. It is so fitting that those eager to learn, having become acquainted with these things also, might make much progress on account of the divine law of life." So he calls it the divine law of life, not death, right? not a, a, this oppressive burden. And he says, the one who grasps, he goes on to say, the one who grasps the law will take hold of wisdom, gladness, and a crown of rejoicing, and an eternal name he will inherit. And then just one more example. There are rabbis who succeed. Some people think the Pharisees, oh, the bad guys, you know, the, the guys we think are the bad guys, right, in the New Testament. 
uh, the rabbis, right, who succeed uh, the Jews after uh, the destruction of the temple in 8070. This is what it says. This is what some of them write. At Sinai, so when God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, he appeared to them as an old man full of mercy. Isn't that so interesting? That the rabbis said that when God appeared to them at Sinai and gave them the law, he didn't appear to them as a grumpy old man, right, who just hated them and wanted to give them these oppressive burdens. But they say he came not as a dictator, right, but one full of mercy. Another rabbi says, God, the Holy One, he was minded to grant merit to Israel. Therefore, he multiplied for them the law and commandments. It pleased the Lord for his righteousness sake to magnify the law and make it honorable. And so what is the point I'm trying to make? Well, the observance of the law, if you remember, right, Jesus, Paul, James, they're all Jewish people, right, who knew their Old Testament, who loved the law. So we have to have a proper understanding. We want to have the same understanding that they did, where the observance of the law was always understood in the context of God's grace, his gracious covenant with Abraham and with Israel. In other words, the law never established a relationship with God for the people. But the law was meant to maintain that relationship with God. And of course, some people twisted it, right, where the law, which was meant to not maintain, or sorry, to maintain a relationship with God, that's what its purpose was, to enjoy fellowship with God, to know how to live in God's world and in his nation of Israel, and to be blessed and to flourish, right, that was the original intention. But some people, of course, we see in the New Testament, we see in the book of Galatians, who twist the law for a purpose it was never meant to serve, right, to save us. But the Israelites and God's intention for the law was never meant to save. God saved his people and has always saved his people and will always save people based on his grace, not by works. But this doesn't mean we just throw out the law, but that the law is bad. It's meant to be a joy and a blessing to follow. And I bring again all this up because James uses this interesting language. Right, about the law, calling it perfect, saying it's the law of liberty, where it's freeing. He says that at the end of verse 25. At the end of verse 25, he says that the person who does the law will be blessed, will be happy in his doing, as we read in Psalm 1. And this is important because I get it, right? Like, I was a kid once, and I had my parents telling me things to do, right? And we just don't like people telling us things to do, right? And we're just naturally going to be like, well... What does this person know, right? Or maybe we might know it's right, but we might cherish something more, as I mentioned. And we might think this is gonna harm us or it's not gonna bring us happiness, or that it's gonna be oppressive or put shackles on us more than it is going to free us. But James and Paul, they use language that talks about freedom, right? When we put ourselves under the yoke of Christ and his lordship and his kingship and his royal law, and a huge part of that is just trusting God. Trusting that God is good and that when he tells us something and commands us to do something that he cares for us as a loving heavenly father. And that we may not see the immediate payouts of what's refraining from doing something we wanna do, right, or doing something we shouldn't. We don't 
immediately see what the point of it is. But I can tell you from experience, from making my own mistakes, sinning, right, and thinking I knew better, right, and also when I did obey and see, you know what, God, you were right. You were right, and you were loving and caring for me when you gave me these commandments. It's kind of like studying for a test, right? You think when you should be studying and you're watching Netflix or you're playing video games, you're like, man, I feel so free, this feels amazing. But then you get to the test day and you feel not free at all, right? You feel, I don't know, scared or you feel nervous or you definitely don't feel good, right? But when you study, when you know you should be studying, you feel like you're putting shackles on yourself, right? Well, all my friends are hanging out doing things, right? they're having fun, and I'm sitting here studying, my parents are making me study. But then when you get to that test day, and you've studied enough, right? you've put in all that work, while your friend who's maybe going out and doing things or not studying, maybe they're freaking out, but you're sitting there and you're like, man, this is very liberating. This is freeing, because I studied, and I prepared, and I put those shackles on myself, right? and disciplined myself, so that now I can enjoy this moment of hopefully getting an A on the test, right? And we can think about that with sports, right? With music, any sort of discipline, right? We think, man, this is oppressive, right? This is bad. But we see that when we put in that discipline and that work, and we follow and do the right thing, that it's going to have a rich and rewarding payoff in the end. So James, that's why he can say that this is the law of liberty, this is the perfect law, and whoever does it will be happy and blessed. And something I just want to point out before we move on and, and end this uh, sermon is when we come to James and Paul, right? We're, especially when you get into James chapter two, you're going to read some words where he's, you know, talking about well, you say you have faith, but you don't have works, so you need to show me your faith by your works, right? And it could seem like him and Paul are. You know, like they're, they're fighting or they're contradicting each other, right? Where maybe they have swords and they're fighting each other. But we want to remember that they're facing and, or yeah, they're facing and encountering two completely different situations, right? Where Paul, he's combating, um, he's combating legalism, where people who are using the law the wrong way by saying you need to do the law to be saved. But as I talked about, right, it's not about doing the law to be saved. It's about doing the law out of joy and devotion to God because we love God and because God has loved us. Well, James, on the other hand, as you'll see, the people he's addressing, they're in serious sin. They're, they would what we would call, so if you have legalists or legalism, you would have, on the other end, on the other end, antinomians, antinomians. And that word basically just means anti-law, anti-law people who just reject the law and don't want to follow and obey God at all. And so that's why James might seem like he's contradicting Paul, but we should see them better as not with swords fighting each other, but with swords back-to-back fighting two different opponents, where James is dealing with a very specific situation. Right? These are letters, and so he's dealing with people who say, all right, I can just do whatever I want. I can be rich, and I can... Uh, be rich at the expense of my poor brethren, and I can oppress them, right? I can act corruptly in whatever I want, and I have faith, and I'm saved. He's attacking that, where Paul is attacking the opposite. Right? People who need to hear more of God's grace, because other people were coming in and saying, no, you need to do more to be saved. And so that's what Paul is combating. 
Okay, so just kind of ending things here in verses 26 to 27. Verses 26 to 27. James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So for some of us, the word religious, or the word religion, it might have a negative connotation for us. Um, but James, the way he's using it, he's using it positively here. This word for religious in the context, it means to revere and to worship God. He's saying, if you think that you are a follower of Christ, if you think you're religious in this way, saying you honor and you worship God, but you don't act like it, then he says your faith is worthless. He says your religion is worthless. And so he provides some examples of what someone who is a consistent worshiper of God looks like. So we, uh, or so this verse, I think, is not meant to provide like an exhaustive list of what someone who is a doer of God's word looks like, right? Of what a faithful person looks like. I think, of course, like it includes it includes these things, right? Uh, bridling your tongue, um, right? Uh, Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, right, to keep yourself unstained from the world. But this isn't an exhaustive list, right? Again, he's writing a letter to a specific group of people who are struggling with certain things, or struggling with certain sins, or neglecting certain people that they should be caring for. But the point is, he's giving a principle for us to follow. He's giving us practical examples of behavior patterns of those who are doers of the word. And so he includes things, these things related to personal holiness, right? And one of those examples being brighter in our tongue. Responsibility toward others, right? And our relationship with the world. And so I'll refrain from talking and uh, elaborating on these things because he's going to spend plenty of time in the rest of the letter addressing them. And he's gonna go, he's gonna go hard on these people. Um, and I'm glad I did not have to deliver those later messages because he really goes in on the hearers and on the readers of this letter. But for now, I just want us to focus on and walk away reflecting on what it means to be consistent. To be consistent in the way we come and hear and receive God's word, but also us living out and doing God's word. So I want to leave you with this. Think about your life, examine your hearts, and ask, where might I be inconsistent in my life when it comes to hearing God's word, when it comes to doing God's word? Am I just coming to church? Am I just hearing the word and just letting it go in one ear and out the other? Or am I actually thinking about God's word? Thinking about it, thinking about God, thinking about my life and how I need to conform to God's perfect and good law of liberty for his glory and for our good. And James says, as we do this, as we are consistent in this way, not just being hearers of the word, but doers of the word, he says we will be blessed, we'll be happy. And again, God will be glorified through this. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful and amazing privilege it is to hear your word. Uh, God, that we have access to your word, that we have access to the gospel. We think of people all over the world who don't even have a Bible available in their language, who have never even heard of Jesus Christ. And that provides perspective for us, God, that we are blessed with an abundance of riches. We are so spoiled, God. But I pray that we wouldn't be spoiled bratty children who just look at all the wonderful gifts you give to us through your word, the promises and encouragements contained therein, and that we wouldn't just throw them away, God, that we wouldn't dishonor you that way, but God, that we would accept it, that we would cherish it, that we would steward it, and that we would let your word take root in our hearts and transform us, God, and that we would actively look to apply it to do your word for your glory and for our good. So help us do that, God. We trust and know that it's your, it is your Holy Spirit that does that. And so we need your help and ask for your help to do that. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.